Amen. You can be seated. And boy, I just, I'm just so impressed. I get reminded every week that the church is not a building. I've been to churches, so-called churches, church buildings uh, in different parts of the world. And one thing that always stands out to me about those places is that, the, is that they're often cold and dark and empty. And I almost feel like, why in the world would we call it a church? Church is people, living people, people that have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb who is Jesus Christ. Hey, you made it here today. Praise God. And if you thought it was going to be a boring service and it was going to be cold and sleepy, boy, we got woken up this morning with some uh, dancing today. Woo, praise God for that. Uh, you know, I think I got a few extra steps in today, which is good uh, on my step count. So working toward them 10,000 today helped out with worship. So thank you so much, worship team. But I, I just want to say thank you to all of the team that makes Sunday mornings possible, our setup team. There were several curveballs that were thrown today. Didn't have enough chairs, didn't know that we weren't going to be able to come through our regular entrance today. And our teams, our guest experience team, our kids team, our setup team, they just adjusted and so flexible uh, in honor of King Jesus. So we're just so appreciative of, uh, of them today. I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. And I also want to remind you, we've got these great invitation cards here with our, our logo for uh, celebrating our Easter service next week and all the information that's, that's needed there on the back of that card. We've got hundreds of those. Grab a handful on your way out today. Give them to some folks. Pass them out. Invite your friends, your neighbors, family, coworkers, whoever. Hey, say, why don't you enjoy and see what Easter is all about? See what the church actually celebrates. I promise you, you won't be ashamed. Uh, we, we don't have a church service that's weird or anything like that. We're not going to unnecessarily make them feel uncomfortable. We want to welcome them. We want your friends, your ones to hear the good news about Jesus. So you don't have to take this feeling and ashamed or embarrassed to say, hey, I would love to have you join me. Pass these out. We've got them in, in the back. I hope that all of them are gone uh, by the time uh, we dismiss here today or after we dismiss and close up here today. But we're, we're in a three-part series. We started last week, this week, and then also next week. A little series centered on Easter and the, and the story of what Jesus has done for us called Jesus in My Place. Jesus in My Place. And what we're seeing are just several snapshots, really some live images that like you take on your phone of the hours leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Because we believe that Jesus didn't die a martyr. No, he died according to the gracious plan of God to rescue sinners. Jesus willingly laid down his life in our place. Last week we saw that Jesus grasped the cup of suffering in our place. We saw that moment of him crying out to God the Father saying, Father, remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup of suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He drank the bitter cup of suffering to pay the debt that we owe for our sins. And at that moment, even though he hadn't started going through all the physical pain and suffering, he said, I'm going to grasp that cup. He made the conscious choice to do that. Well, since then, uh, between the last passage that we saw last week and this week, Jesus has been arrested 
He's been questioned and he's been declared guilty overnight by the council of the chief priests of the temple and the rulers of the people in Jerusalem. But they couldn't kill him legally. They didn't have the authority to do that. So they brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, to have him condemned by the Romans and put to death. But why are these guys doing this? Why are these chief priests and rulers of the people, why are they doing this to Jesus? You see, these guys were the religious leaders. Religious. They weren't atheists. They weren't even agnostics. They weren't secular, as we would put it today. And they certainly weren't pagans like the Romans. You see, if anyone should have recognized who Jesus was, it should have been these people, these leaders, these men. As I was exploring this this week, I was thinking, what what do we mean by the term religion? What what is religion? Think about that word for just a moment, religion. Well, Merriam-Webster's dictionary describes it this way. It's a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. It's the service and worship of God or the supernatural. It's a commitment, a commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance. Think of devotion, commitment, practice. Dictionary.com says it's a specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or sects. A fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon. What image comes to your mind when you think of the word religion? Religion. The Bible in the New Testament has several instances where religion is mentioned. Some are good and some are actually bad. James 1.27 describes good. It says, A pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is expressed in caring for those in need and keeping oneself from being stained by the sin of the world. That's good religion before God the Father. In honor of God the Father, we seek to care for those who are in need and keep ourselves unstained from uh, the sins of the world that we live in. It's good religion. There's also a, a bad religion, a bad form of devotion and commitment. In Colossians 2.23, it describes a self-made, self-made man-centered religion based upon rules and regulations that attempt to rein in one's sinful desires, but it fails. And what's interesting there is that James says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, but in Colossians 2.23, it's absent. This bad religion is absent of living before the face of God. One good religion is centered on God and the other is centered on self, upon me. The first form of religion that's good seeks to honor and glorify God the Creator, but the second form seeks to make oneself look good and receive honor and glory for self. One is centered on God. One is centered on you. Religion. What do you think of when you think of religion? What if someone were to walk up to you even today and and just in a conversation over coffee, maybe it's your one, they were to ask you, if you're a religious person, how would you answer? Are you a religious person? Now, the leaders of our story, if we were to ask them that question, they would emphatically say, yes, we're as committed and devoted to our set of beliefs and practices as anyone you'll find. We have the law of Moses. We have the authority as priests. We have the temple. 
We have tradition. We have heritage. We have ethnic lineage to Abraham. We have the right of circumcision that marks us as the people who belong to God. You couldn't find a more devoted group, but it was their religion. Religion, the thing they believed, earned their position in God's economy. This would be the very thing that would lead them to do the unthinkable. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I've found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. It wasn't atheism. It wasn't paganism that crucified Jesus. It was man-made, self-centered religion. Religion, and that's our big idea this morning. Religion replaced the Messiah with a murderer. Religion replaced the Messiah with a murderer. Devotion to some fundamental sets of beliefs substituted Jesus, the promised one, for a criminal named Barabbas. It wasn't atheism or paganism that got rid of Jesus. It was religion. Religion. And as we're going to see this morning, that maybe we're not so different from these religious people but we all have self-centered, religious, hard hearts. But the good news of Jesus is that He dies for religious people too. Amen? Religion replaced the Messiah with a murderer. Here's the first thing that we see from this story today. First, we see this. We see Jesus' undeniable innocence. Jesus' undeniable innocence. We see first here the, the chief priests and the rulers of the people. These guys, they'd been watching Jesus throughout his ministry and they finally had their opportunity to eliminate him. They were threatened by Jesus. Isn't that amazing to feel threatened by Jesus? In, in Luke chapter 19, verses 47 to 48, we see that Jesus was teaching in the temple daily and the chief priests and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But the people, they were hanging on every word that Jesus was teaching. They could see that this Jesus was doing something amazing. He was healing people, doing amazing miracles. And his teaching was unlike anything they had ever heard. And, and they looked at this Jesus and they said, these people would rather listen to him than to us. These people would rather follow him than follow us. 
These people would rather do what he says and follow his leadership than, than follow our leadership. They felt threatened by Jesus. And so twice it says in, in Luke's gospel, in, in 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 19, and chapter 20, verse 22, we see that these religious leaders, they feared the people. The very people that they felt they needed to control, they started to fear these people. They feared losing control of people because Jesus was gaining large followings because of his teachings and miracles. But not only that, they didn't just fear losing control of them, they actually feared the people themselves. They feared the people because though they wanted to get rid of Jesus, they knew that the people would rebel against them and riot if they arrested Jesus publicly. So these guys started to, to scheme and connive. How can we get rid of this Jesus? But we can't do it in front of these people because we are afraid of them. But they found their opportunity. They found their opportunity when Judas approached them. We see that in chapter 22, verse 5. It says, when Judas came to them with this plot to say, hey, I can figure out a way for you, for you guys to get him away from the crowds, away, away from the people, their hearts were glad. They were glad. They've been angry, distressed, distraught, fearful all this time. But now when they have their opportunity to get Jesus, they become glad. Their emotions have been turned upside down because of their selfish, self-centered, man-made religion. What about Pilate? Now, he was the Roman governor of Judea. He was responsible to maintain relative peace in Jerusalem, especially during a busy time like Passover that was being celebrated there in the city. But, but he was weak. He was fickle. He craved approval from Rome more than anything the religious leaders, they knew this and, and they threatened to tattle on Pilate multiple times if he didn't do what they wanted. And so here's Pilate wanting to seek the approval of Rome, but knowing that he's got these guys underneath him that are trying to find a way to trip him up as well so that they could gain the control. But Pilate also references Herod. Herod Antipas, he was the king of a little area to the north of Jerusalem around Galilee, and, and the Romans let him be king, in quotes, to placate his family, but really he ruled under the thumb of Rome. And Pilate says this about Jesus' innocence. He says, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. You brought this guy and he tried to portray him as someone who was creating riots and causing insurrections and being a troublemaker and a rabble rouser. But, but, but you brought me this man who you said was misleading people, but I couldn't find anything against him. I, I didn't find this man guilty. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him, neither Pilate, the pagan, or Herod, the uh, secular, really. He didn't care about who he worshipped. He wanted, he, uh, he wanted glory for himself. Neither of these guys could charge Jesus with anything. Jesus was undeniably innocent. He didn't deserve this treatment. Even the pagan and the fake king could see it. You see, friends, what's happening here is Luke is making it abundantly clear that it was the religious who wanted Jesus dead. A religious person, a religious person become, can become more for, a more ferocious enemy of Jesus and his gospel than a non-religious person. Pilate and Herod, Herod were rather indifferent and apathetic about Jesus, but it was the religious leaders who vehemently opposed Jesus and demanded he be murdered and executed. The religious zeal focused on themselves and their own power, rather than on God, blinded the chief priests and blinded the rulers. 
Jesus was innocent, but they couldn't see it. How many of you are parents out there? Any parents? All right, we got a few parents, right? You've probably seen it before when that, that child, right? You told that child, hey, we're having dinner soon. I don't want you going into the kitchen and going in and grabbing any snacks, especially those cookies that I just baked, right? And you leave for a while and you come back and it's been really quiet, right? Because like perfect quiet means that your kids are perfectly obeying you, right? But you come back to the kitchen and, and you notice that there are a few cookies that are gone, right? And you, you come and you find that child and what do you see on that child's face but crumbs on their shirt, above their lips and chocolate smeared all around their lips. Hey, uh, what happened? Did, did you take a cookie? Oh, oh no, I didn't take a cookie. What cookie? What are, what's a cookie? I've never taken anything like that. And they become blinded. They've become blinded to their own disobedience. They become blinded and they, and they think that they could pull the wool over your eyes. They've got crumbs and chocolate all over their face, but they can't see it. They're blind to it. They're trying to protect themselves, defend themselves from getting in trouble with mom and dad. Friends, this is what religion does to us. Religion that's focused on self, it's blinding, it's consuming. Religion that, that is void of God and focused on self is, is narrow-minded. This kind of religious practice and belief, it becomes dogmatic and rigid about issues and laws and rules that bear, bear very little eternal significance. Friends, this is a, it's a threat to the religious leaders. But I want to say it's a threat to us too. It's a great threat to all of us. When we take the focus of our devotion away from God and away from His glory and we place our focus and our devotion on ourselves and our own image and our performance, we quickly become blind to the truth, the goodness of Jesus. We want Him to do what we want Him to do. We have crumbs and chocolate all over our faces, but we deny what's true in the name of religion Jesus was undeniably innocent, but because of religion, these leaders were blinded to it. That's the setting, but, but where does the conflict come in here in our story? Secondly, the religious leaders, they displayed unrelenting madness. Unrelenting madness. These guys, they cry out all together, verse 18 of our text, away with this man, Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, Barabbas, John 18, 40 describes this man as a robber. The gospel describe him as an insurrectionist, a murderer. He was a notorious prisoner, according to Matthew. He was likely part of a, a political insurrection against the Romans in Jerusalem, probably a member of the Zealots, which was a, a Jewish political group who sought to break free from Rome by violence. And what's interesting, actually, is in Matthew 27, 16 to 17, in some manuscripts that we have, it's possible that this Barabbas, his name was actually Jesus Barabbas, meaning Jesus, son of Abba, or Jesus, son of a father. And so you could almost see there's, there's two choices here. Which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the robber, or Jesus of Nazareth? And what do these religious people cry out? Crucify, away with this man. Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Pilate couldn't believe it. Barabbas? 
Come on, you guys. You can't be serious right now. I mean, come on. This is getting out of hand. This is getting ridiculous. This is madness. But how did they respond? Oh, yeah, you're right. That Barabbas, we, we thought about it. He is a crazy guy. No, they doubled down on it. Crucify. Crucify him. These religious people, these chief priests and rulers, they double down. They say, nail him to the cross. This is a punishment reserved for the worst of criminals. We want the murderer crucified Jesus. This is madness, friends. This is the place that religion without God can take us to. It takes us to madness because we're so centered on ourselves. Verse 22, Pilate, he tries a third time to release Jesus. What evil has he done? What has he done that's deserving of death? I'm going to punish him. I'll even whip him a little bit just to satisfy you. But we've got to let this guy, Jesus, go. But what happens? They become urgent. They become unrelenting. Their cries get louder and louder. The madness deepens. The religious leaders, they were the keepers of the temple and teachers of the law. They ought to have been the ones denouncing injustice, denouncing insurrection, denouncing robbery, standing up against murder. But their passions drove them away from God's law. And they justified their actions in their own self-deception to become the very thing they were supposed to defend against. Their desire for power, their desire for their own glory, their desire for their own way ruled their hearts and their loud cries reflected the madness of, our, of their hearts. Sometimes the loudest voice just wins out, right? Not the voice of truth, but the voice of volume, the loudest voice. Now, you may also, if you're a parent, have experienced this as a kid. Uh, the loudest voices in my home made me do something that I never thought I would ever in a million years do. Now, I want you to know something. I am not an animal hater. I love animals. I love pets. If you've got a pet at home and I come over to your house and they're jumping on my legs and stuff, that's great. But I never thought I, I need a dog. I've never thought that in my life. And for many, many years, I had uh, my daughter, Alethea, especially. I love you, Alethea, but she wanted a dog so bad. She had puppy passion. She wanted this dog so bad. And year after year after year, year Alethea, what would you like for Christmas? Or Alethea, what would you like for your birthday? Every time, I want a puppy, Dad. And what made it even harder was that some of our very friends, they started to get dogs and puppies, and she'd come home from staying at their house. Oh, the puppy was so cute. Oh, my goodness. And then if it wasn't bad enough, our sons would join in. Yeah, Dad, you know, it's really not fair that all of our friends have dogs, and we don't have a dog. And this went on for years and years and years and years. And finally, our kids wore me down to get a dog something that I was not really all that excited about. My life was great, and now we have Archie. Yeah. Our, our kid's passion for a puppy far outpaced my passion for a puppyless life. Yeah, but sometimes the loudest cries in the room are the ones that get their way. Sometimes our beliefs, our causes... 
our soapboxes that are so focused on our desires rather than God's can lead us to do the unthinkable. Listen to this, friends. A passion that outpaces our passion for Jesus can lead us to do things we never thought were possible. A passion that outpaces our passion for Jesus can lead us to do things we never thought were possible. We've seen this in the evangelical church in America, especially recently. And it's a threat not just to the church out there, it's a threat to the church in here and right in here. It's a threat to your small group. You may have passions. uh, You may make your passions the most important things that you want to stand for. You may even believe that you're standing for Jesus. And so you excuse your behaviors. You excuse your pride. You excuse your dogma that just runs over people and it leads you to do what you thought formerly would have been unthinkable for you to do. You begin hating your brother or sister in Jesus. We begin dividing over issues that are secondary or even tertiary or lower. You put people on blast on social media or worse, behind their back. We divide, we hate, and we murder in our hearts, and we do what was once unthinkable, all in the name of our cause. Friends, this is the unrelenting madness of a religious heart It's not focused on Jesus. Our passions and our preferences outpace our passion for Jesus. And we do the unthinkable. Friends, we've all been here. I've been here. I get so uptight, get so frustrated about me and the way way I think things ought to be. And it causes me to hate you. Causes me to hate my family. Causes me to hate my spouse. Oh, that we'd repent of a self-centered, hard, religious heart. Luke gets to the conclusion of this whole bit of the story before Jesus is carried away and crucified. We see the sentence of unthinkable injustice. The sentence of unthinkable justice. Now, (laughs) you know, I'm starting to learn these little abbreviations that my kids use in their texting, and half the time I have to look them up, right? because I don't know what they are. But I do know this one, SMH, right? Shaking my head. Shaking my head, right? I, it's, it's just unbelievable to me. It's unthinkable to me. I, I can almost imagine that Luke is penning this in this text right now, SMH. I'm shaking my head. Luke chapter 23, verses 24 to 25, it says this, So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable injustice. The religious leaders, their voices had prevailed. Pilate was weak. He caved. He didn't stand for justice. He gave in to the the unjust and mad cravings of the religious leaders. And oh, these religious people were ruthless. Ruthless. Could you imagine? I, I can almost see them celebrating, high-fiving each other. Yes, we did it. The release of a notorious murderer as they order Pilate's soldiers to crucify Jesus. It's the insanity of the unthinkable. Let's read verse 25 together again. Just follow along as you do. I invite you to just shake your head. 
he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The insanity of unthinkable justice. See the contrast. The undeniably righteous one condemned for the release of the notoriously unrighteous one. Friends, Jesus knows injustice. He knows it. He's felt it to the infinite degree. Friends, some of you here may feel like I've, I've experienced so much injustice in my life. Or maybe you watch the news or, or know of friends or know of peoples that, that just experience injustice. Oh, we've got one that knows injustice. The perfectly righteous one being condemned in the place and release of the notoriously unrighteous one. This stood out to Luke so much that he repeats this, shaking his head, uh, uh, unthinkable injustice. He repeats it in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. As, as Peter now is, is speaking to a group, who many of whom who saw this all go down, he, he says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you religious folks... You religious folks, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And Luke, again, shaking his head, I can imagine writing this down, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You see, religion, it's powerful, but it's not powerful enough to keep Jesus in the grave. Religion replaced the Messiah with a murderer. What are we to think about all this? Friends, our, our religious hearts, we all prefer Barabbas over Jesus. We'll do the unthinkable to get our own way. You see, we crave and desire our own kingdom, our glory, my glory, my standard my control to reign over my life. But when we begin to lose control, and when Jesus doesn't give us what we want, we prefer Barabbas. We demand Jesus to be dethroned, even if it means we would do the unthinkable, prefer a murderer over the author of life. But there's good news. There's good news. Easter is good news, friends. Jesus is the one who willingly takes the place of criminals. Willingly. He dies our death so that we may be released. You see, not only do we stand with Barabbas, but in many ways, Barabbas is a metaphor for each and every single one of us. We're all criminals. We're all dead in trespasses and sins. Our unrighteousness is notorious. And Jesus comes in and says, yes, I'm willing to be condemned so that you can be released. He takes the debt we owe because of our rebellion against God so that we may go free. You see, Jesus trades places with us. He trades places with you. He trades places with me. In His grace, God the Father makes the trade. And it seems insane. But the reason the religious leaders did it was for their own control. The reason that God does what would seem unthinkable from our perspective is that He does it because of His grace. 
And he does it because of his love for you and me. He puts the sin of the criminals on his son, Jesus. He puts the righteousness of the Messiah on rebels and murderers like you and me, the Barabbases. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Though they released a murderer and killed the author of life, God raised him from the dead. Peter writes this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Messiah for the unrighteous Barabbases, that he might bring Barabbases to God. Barabbases to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is an amazing verse. One of my, my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says this, of this great exchange, this great trade. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, the innocent one, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, if you've come in here today with a hard religious heart, if you've been standing with Barabbas or maybe you see yourself in Barabbas, I want you to know today the author of life has gone through it all to give you life today. It's an unfair trade, but it's a free gift by His grace to everyone who says, I put down my hard religious heart, this heart that would replace the Messiah with a murderer, and I want Jesus. I want His grace. I want His righteousness that I could never earn on my own. You see, religion says, I must do to be accepted. That's what the religious leaders were thinking. We've got to do. We've got to have control. We've got to perform. We've got to do everything that we're supposed to do and have it all centered on ourselves so that we could be accepted. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what we celebrate this week is this. Jesus did, therefore I am accepted. Where religion is self-focused, the gospel is Jesus-focused, and it sets criminals and religious hard hearts free. Religion replaced the Messiah with the murderer, but the gospel covers sinners with the righteousness of Messiah. Oh friend, today, if you've come in and you recognize my behaviors, my attitudes, my words, my interactions have been reflecting a hard religious heart that has begun to do the unthinkable. There's good news for you today, friend. It's good news for me. We can repent and look once again to the Messiah who sets criminals free. What does this mean for Monday? How are we to live this, this truth out? Not just today, not just in a cafeteria in Northern Virginia, but in our workplaces, Monday through Saturday. First of all, friends, it's time for followers of Jesus to own their stuff. Own your stuff. O own it all. You see, religion, it's, it's defensive. It accuses others while excusing yourself. It's an unwillingness to own up to what you do wrong. I want to ask you, when was the last time you admitted guilt about something? that you confessed to doing something wrong, that you were the first in a conflict to come and say, hey, it was me. I blew it. When, you, when were you willing to even lose an argument because you saw you were in the wrong? See, our religious hard hearts 
are unwilling, and we double down. We double down. We double down. We keep putting more money on the table to say, I know I'm right. I have to be proven right. I have to show that I can perform. I have to show that I'm good. Religion does that and is never willing to confess one's own guilt and one's own sin. But if we're going to live this out, that our religious practice that our devotion is to Jesus and not to self. We can be a people that own our stuff, that own our mistakes, that own our sins, that own our offenses because we realize it's not about my performance. It's about the performance of Jesus. So we own our stuff and we promote the righteousness of Jesus. What a testimony it would be if there was a group of people who left this room today Living out the kind of religion that says, I want people to see Jesus and not me. When you wrong a neighbor, when you make a mistake at work, when you, when you do something wrong, even to a spouse or a child, you get down and you say, I own my stuff, it was me. My religion isn't about me, it's about Jesus. We promote the righteousness of D- Jesus. Our devotion is to Him above all else. Religion that's focused on self can be harsh, rigid, even excusing the unthinkable to preserve our self-image. But you and I can be people who are humble and we can quickly own up to our failures and weaknesses and sins. We point to Jesus. We stand with Jesus and not Barabbas. We recognize the Barabbas is in us and we repent and we say we stand with Jesus even if it means I lose face before others. Even if it means I lose power and control. I'm going to trust in the one who controls the universe. Jesus did. Jesus performed. He was in the right, and he stood in my place. Jesus in the place of religious hard hearts and criminals like Barabbas, the author of life, being willing to be given up and murdered so that he could set Barabbas's free. Therefore, I'm accepted even when I do wrong. Friend, that's our good news. That's our gospel. That's our good news for Easter. Oh, I, I pray that, that as we get ready for Easter and, and we celebrate and, and we invite people over and we bake that ham and make those cheesy potatoes or whatever it is that you do around your Easter table, when you invite your ones over, when you spend time with them, if there's any hint that they're beginning to look at you, wow, look how how devoted they are. Look how religious they are. Why don't you just own your stuff and say, you know what? I I realized that before God's holiness and his perfection, I was a criminal like Barabbas. I want you to see Jesus. He's the author of life. Religion that's focused on self is even capable of rejecting Messiah in place of a murderer. But I stand with Jesus. I don't care what you see about me. I want you to see him. And if you've never received the good news of Jesus, if you've never accepted the author of life who can give you new life, we want to invite you to do that today. We're about to close our service. I I invite the worship team to come on back up. We want to invite you today. If you've never received the author of life, you can do that today. You can turn from your hard, self-centered, religious heart that's maybe been so frustrated because you can't perform like you want to. Look to the one who performed for you. Look to the author of life. I I hope that we've got some folks that are willing to admit, I'm Barabbas, but I look to Jesus, the one who can set me free.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you as people who recognize that we can have hard religious hearts like these leaders that, that should have known better. Oh, we should have known better. We've, we're Fairfax Bible Church. We, we open up the truth of Scripture every single day, but even that, Lord, if it's focused on ourselves, can become a source of separation from you. That our religious hearts can become hard because we see our duty and not the goodness of our Savior, who's Jesus, the author of life. And so, Lord, there, there could be some religious leaders in this room today. In my own heart, we're called to repent and turn away from our self-centered religion. But, Lord, there could also be some Barabbases here today, those that feel like I can never be worthy to be welcomed into God's kingdom. I'm a notorious criminal. I murder people in my mind and in my heart all the time. Oh, there's release and grace and salvation for Barabbases and for religious types. Oh, Lord, we come to you today as we prepare in this Passion Week to worship Jesus, our Savior. I pray that our religious practices, our devotions, our commitments, our Bible reading, our prayer, our celebrations and traditions, oh, I pray, strip us from the kind of religion that would put the Messiah on a cross in favor of a murderer and teach us to love and focus on and savor the Savior, that we would love Him, the author of life, with all of our hearts. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We, we see in the midst of all of this that, that you kept your mouth silent, though you, better than anyone, knew your own innocence. You knew you were the holy and righteous one. We see, Lord, that, that you weren't a martyr, but you were one who stood and took all the false accusations against yourself so that you could die in our place. We love you, we honor you, and we receive you as Lord and Savior and author of life today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.